that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and he puts his servants in charge, each with his assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight, or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Now, we don't typically follow the lectionary uh, every week, but when it comes to the seasons that are preparatory to um, the great feasts, I tend to do that. Advent is one of those times. Lent is one of those times. Because the, those who have gone before us in the faith have recognized the great value of thinking about celebration differently than we as a society think about celebration. The way that as a society we think about it is, you know, I started hearing music, uh, Christmas music in the stores like three or four uh, days before um, Thanksgiving. And so we start a nonstop sprint that starts the middle of November and it sprints all the way to Christmas Day and then we drop from exhaustion. And that's culturally how we do it. That's not the way the church fathers and the church mothers saw the holidays to go. What they did is they spent the weeks before the feast in a time of quietness and in a time of preparing their hearts. And then the feast of the day of Christmas began what we consider the 12 days of Christmas or Easter does the same thing. Easter tide is what it's called. The season after the holiday was an extended time of joy and celebration and raucous riotry. And everything before that was a time of contemplation and quietness. Now, I've tried to institute that in the earlier times in, when I was in ministry, and I realized going up against the uh, great big 800-pound gorilla of our society is a losing proposition. <laughs> so I'm not going to try and lead us into a place of quietness and stillness, but I am going to try and restore something of the contemplative preparation of the holidays. And what we do is we come and we listen and we quiet, and we check in with those who have gone before us, who in their wisdom have set before us a path so that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to go back and start doing church as though it hasn't been being done for thousands of years. What they did is they said, in Advent, this is a time to focus ourselves on repentance, to focus ourselves on internal examination, to present our lives before God for him to seek out and say, Lord, is there any wicked way within me? If so, bring it to light, expose it, and I will bring it to you in repentance. And I'm going to lead us these next four weeks into several of the themes that have been characterized historically during the season of Advent. And this Sunday we begin by looking at the issue of repentance from a little bit of a different angle. I was reading a story a few weeks ago about a pastor who uh, led a church in the 1950s and he found himself having cause to drive across the country by himself. And he found himself after having driven through the night, stopping for breakfast before dawn at a diner. He was stopped in a small town 
in the Deep South, and it was immediately after desegregation had happened. And after he ordered and was waiting for his breakfast, uh, a black man came in and sat at the counter immediately opposite him. The proprietor was exceedingly rude to this man. He demeaned him. He uh, was very abrasive and insulting and clearly reflected his harsh racist attitude toward the man. And as this was happening, the pastor was wrestling inside of himself. What should I do? Should I chide this manager for his shameful behavior? Or should I avoid making a scene? What should I do? And back and forth, it went on during the course of his meal. And there is always risk in creating a scene. There was always the possibility of some bad thing happening. And so because of that, he found himself in this tough dilemma. What shall I do? And as he was writing, he confessed in his writing that observing this man quickly bolt down his breakfast and get out of that uncomfortable situation as rapidly as he could. He found himself coming up to pay his bill and instead of saying anything, doing anything, he quietly paid his bill, left the diner, and went to his car. And as he was walking across the parking lot on his way to his car in this quiet southern town, he heard off in the distance a rooster crowing. And as I was reading that story, it was a powerful image to me because I, as I imagine you can, could put myself in his position. The nudge comes from the Holy Spirit to do the right thing. It's right there. It's right in front of you. The Holy Spirit whispers to you, prompts you, and nudges you. But it's a tough nudge. It's a hard thing to do. Sometimes it's tough because of social pressure, as in the case of this man. Making waves is never easy. <clears throat> Going against the tide is always emotionally demanding. It goes this way now. Yes. How's that? Better? And so the opportunities come. Sometimes the pressure is too great. And sometimes inertia sets in. But it may not just be social pressure as in this case. Inertia takes a lot of forms. Man, I've thought and I've acted this way in relationship to my family for as long as I can remember. And now the Holy Spirit is coming on to nudge some kind of change. And I've got to tell you, it's a deep change. And it is a whole lot easier just to stand here and be as things have always been than it is to go and make this great change. That's if we get to the place where we can bring that to our consciousness, because most of the time we can't even get it up to our consciousness. We just know something is amiss. Boy, I've lived with this personal weakness for some time. It started as a coping mechanism back when I was a little girl, back when I was a little boy, and now it's become something that has control over me, it has power over me, and I can't stop. I can't. It's very difficult to get up the strength to do this thing. It is difficult for me to get up the courage to make this kind of change. And so inertia sets in, and inertia takes all kinds of forms. And so opportunities come to us to make changes. Chances unfold right before us to establish the kingdom of God in our own lives, in our families, in our neighborhood, in our workplace. 
God, the Holy Spirit comes, gives us the opportunity to obey. And many times we look squarely at that opportunity and we don't take it. And the rooster crows. Most of the time we deal with this inertia through the very cleverly packaged form of avoidance. We look the other way. We are really good at mastering not looking at our stuff. We make it very easy to miss those opportunities by simply not seeing them. We're masterful at avoiding things. But this pastor presented for us a powerful image. Affords us an opportunity to look within ourselves. In his instance, he was afforded the privilege of seeing himself square on. All of his denial, stripped away. All of his betrayal of Jesus, laid bare. All of his shameful avoidance of the kingdom call made very clear for him. All of his regrets right there in stark clarity. For him, a rooster crowing evoked an image, obviously, of another rooster that had crowed many, many years before on Jesus' final day. The rooster near the diner helped him see himself in association as a compatriot of as an equal to Peter who betrayed our Lord before the rooster crowed. Like Peter, he was able to say, I have seen God, I have seen His truth, I have seen His ways, and I have committed myself to His ways, and yet I have failed Him. And yet I have fallen short of His call upon my life. Mark records that instance in his gospel, and by the time he writes it in the year somewhere around 65 to 67, Peter's rooster story was a well-known story among the people. It had become part of the oral tradition of the Christian movement. Everyone knew about the crowing of the rooster. Everyone knew about the betrayal of Peter. Everyone knew about how shamefully Peter had failed Jesus. Everyone could imagine themselves doing what Peter had done because as the story had been told and retold and retold, they have put themselves in Peter's place and they have seen themselves folding under the pressure. They wouldn't have wanted to get themselves killed any more than Peter did. They would have wanted to save their skin just like Peter did. And they had heard the story again and again and again. And every one of them could imagine themselves being presented with the possibility of fidelity and honor and nobility and yet failing and coming up short. Every one of them had imagined the shame and the guilt and the embarrassment and the humiliation that Peter felt. But by then, 30 years later after it had happened, they also knew how the story ended. They knew that Peter, feeling his shame so deeply and feeling his failure so strongly, had said, I'm not fit for anything in the kingdom of God. Let me just go back to being a fisherman. And had returned to fishing. They also knew by then what Jesus had done in response to Peter's shame. How he went down to the beach to find Peter. And he called him over. And he said, leave that behind. Don't be silly. Come over here. Have breakfast with me. And they knew how Jesus had granted Peter forgiveness. How Jesus had washed away his shame, 
And they knew how Jesus had invited him to take up the mission of the kingdom. How Jesus had empowered Peter with his own spirit. How he had said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. And you are not left to your own devices. You are not left to your own weaknesses. You are not left to pull from reserves that will always bring about shameful failure. And they saw how Peter's betrayal, how Peter's sin, how Peter's failure had become a non-issue in the story of the kingdom. They knew this. They knew the story of the rooster. When Mark wrote his gospel down, they knew what he was referencing. And so, Mark, in this passage that we read today, comes to another reference to a rooster. And choosing from the many, many things that Jesus had said, Mark selects this one and says something about the time that is marked by the crow of the rooster. The context of Mark's gospel is this. Jesus said he's coming back in a little while, and they assumed he was measuring that in hours, maybe days, maybe weeks. And now it's gone on a little longer than they had in mind. And now it's 30 years later. And Mark is looking around saying, our children never saw Jesus. Our children's children that are being born now don't know anything about this. So I better write this stuff down and I better help them understand what happened. Because obviously Jesus is going to take longer coming back than we had in mind. They had uh, in mind something measured in weeks and now it's turned into decades. I can't imagine he could even fathom that it would be 2,000 years and we would still be waiting. And so, <clears throat> after having realized that this is taking longer than we had in mind and short-term expectations have been lengthened, he realized we're going to have to stay on guard longer than we anticipated. We're going to have to remain alert longer than we had imagined. So he uses images to help us. Drawing upon Jesus' words, he tells the story of the fig tree. He says, now you've seen the fig tree, how it grows. You've seen how the twigs soften and you've seen how the leaves come out. And you know that when that happens, summer's getting close. Well, you need to be just as watchful for the things of the kingdom as you are watchful for the things of springtime. You need to be just as watchful. Stay on guard. Be alert. Pay attention. And now that we've been going these 30 years, we realize it's not easy to keep alert over this long haul. And so he issues a warning. And he says, be careful. It's hard to be alert for this long. And he uses an illustration. He said, now just imagine Jesus is like a master of a household. And he sets his servants in order before he leaves. And then he goes away and he stays away longer than those servants had in mind. And we are those servants. And we are in charge of stewarding this world, stewarding this earth. And we have to keep watch just like those servants would have to keep watch. We would have to serve him carefully because we don't know when he's coming back. It could be in the morning. It could be in the evening. It could be at midnight. It could be at dawn. And we don't know. And we do not want to be in the position Peter was in. We do not want to be hearing the rooster crow and be found in a moment of sloth. We do not want to hear the rooster crow and be found in a moment of shame. We do not want to be not serving him faithfully when the time comes. 
We don't want to be allowing the kingdom of darkness to prevail in our sphere of influence. We want to make sure that we are being agents of light and not slip into the inertia of thought and the inertia of deed that would accompany such a lengthy time of waiting for our master to return. Let us not let the ways of the world dominate us and dominate how we live. Now, back at the time that Mark was writing, they didn't have clocks. They didn't have watches. They didn't mark time the same way that we do. We tend to mark things very much hourly. We watch things in terms of when does noon come? When does six o'clock come? We mark things to stay in sync with the rest of the people in the marketplace. And they didn't have that. And so consequently, roosters were a very important marker of the time. Now, when I was growing up and I heard about roosters on the farm and, you know, they were something out there, that meant one thing to me. I thought roosters crowed when the sun came up. Well, I have since been a little more experienced with a rooster. (laughs) We moved into a house when we were growing up and somebody had raised one as a pet. And this must have been three or four owners before. This thing, I think, was probably 90 years old. This thing had been living in Van Nuys as long as Van Nuys had existed. It was this gnarled old rooster who could fly. Did you know roosters could fly? I did not know that. Now I know. He could fly because I would chase him to try and kill him, and he would fly away. <laughs> and he would start once at 1.30. He would do it again at 3.30, and he would once at 4.45. Now, this is not when I thought roosters crow, but I was reading up on it, and lo and behold, that wasn't, wasn't just this rooster. <laughs> A lot of roosters do that. They do it at 1.30. They do it at 3, sometime around 3, and they do it just before the light uh, in the dawn. Well, this was more than mildly irritating in my urban lifestyle, so you know I became intimately acquainted with it. But this is how they marked the time, more so than by the clock. They didn't have a chime that would go off in the hearth as they would mark the night hours going by. It would be the rooster. And Mark is using that image as a way of saying the time is close. He uses the image of the rooster to say the time is right around the corner. It would be like today. Get ready for the bell tower to go off or get ready for the alarm on your clock to go off. You don't know when it's going to come, but any moment it could happen. The time is coming and it is more imminent than we think, he says. Don't get caught short because you think it is so long. Now, that imminent thing is a little troubling for us because now here we are this many years later and imminent takes on uh, all kinds of different meanings when you've already gone 2000 years and we're thinking, well, if that's imminent, how much more imminent are we waiting for? And so let's talk about that imminent thing for a moment. In fact, one of the things that Jesus states in this passage has become controversial, controversial for interpreters when Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This generation will certainly not pass away until these things have happened. And these things he's referencing the passage before he's talking about the coming of the kingdom of God. Well, some theologians have speculated that Jesus thought that time would come to an end. The earth would come to closure within his lifetime. These have classified Jesus as an apocalyptic prophet for whom things just didn't work out the way that he had in mind. They would basically say, well, Jesus thought it was going to be one way and it didn't work out that way. Because, look, he said it's going to happen within my lifetime or within your lifetime. And now here we are. All those people have died. They've all gone and it didn't happen. The kingdom hasn't come yet. That's not necessarily the orthodox perspective. Orthodoxy looks at this imminent time thing through the lens of the already not yet 
continuum. We'll talk about that for just a moment. Jesus' first coming, his first advent, marked the beginning of a new era of time. His first advent, his first coming, firmly established the dominion of God, the promise of God. History culminated in the glory of God's victory in his first coming. In Christ Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension. Through him, the kingdom of God has already come to us. Past tense. It has already happened. Christ has already broken into the timeline of history. Believers have already become citizens of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already among us. If you go back and look how many times Jesus used the term the kingdom of God, he is saying it is here now. It is here representative. uh, I am representative of that kingdom. And the death and resurrection of Christ and the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit to dwell in us marks a new time in history, the culmination of history, the victory over sin and death. It was all established just as Jesus said, the kingdom of God came within the lifetime of those who heard Jesus speak those words. As a matter of fact, just a few days after he spoke them, Jesus was brought to death and three days later was raised in resurrection and the world changed. Time did not come to an end as we anticipate in the future during the lifetime of the disciples. And though the world did not come to its culminating conclusion in a very real sense, just a few days after Jesus spoke these words, the kingdom of God was firmly established. Many of you have heard the quote of uh, Winston Churchill said uh, after it had been going badly for the British for a long, long time, and then there was a victory over battle, and a reporter asked him if this was the beginning of the end. He said, no, this is not the beginning of the end. And he said some other things. He said, but it is the end of the beginning. And in a sense, the birth, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the end of the beginning, but also the beginning of the end. The climactic conclusion of the plan of salvation was resident in Jesus Christ. What began in the garden, what passed through the call of Abraham that we talked about some months ago, culminated in the cross of Jesus Christ. It was simultaneously the beginning and the end. It it was the end of things as they had been it, and it was the beginning of the new era, the era of the kingdom, paving the way for that time when God would make all things new. Now, where we find ourselves in this point in history is in the in-between time of already, but not yet. Things have already been culminated in Christ. The victory has already been won in Christ. Sin and death have already been defeated in Christ. Our destiny and our future and our history have already been determined. The kingdom has already been established. But not yet have we seen the full manifestation. And for us, as it must have been for the people that Mark was writing to, well, if Jesus has already won the victory, why so much sickness? If Jesus has already won the victory, why so much divorce? Why so much tension? Why so much heartache? Why so much pain? Why this? Why this? If it's already, why, why, why? And it's the tension that we feel between the already, but the not yet. 
the already been one for us, but not yet fully manifested among us. Jesus' first advent changed reality, changed history, changed the human experience. His second advent, the time when he comes again, will change things by bringing the culmination of history. I don't know what that's going to look like. I used to. I do have a suspicion, though, that the images that we have of clouds and Jesus coming down and mountains splitting and bowls pouring and all that stuff, I have a suspicion we're going to be very surprised by what it looks like. But if we just distill out the essence of what it will be, our God is coming for us. And it may be that he comes for us collectively when the sun burns out. Maybe that he comes for us collectively when the meteor hits the planet. It may be that he comes for us collectively on a moment when history comes to an end. Or it may be that he comes for us individually when Jesus comes and he takes your hand and he takes you to the place where time is no more. But there is coming a time. There is coming a moment. There is coming the day that Paul called it when we will stand before our God. And Mark is saying that Jesus' final advent is always potentially imminent. He will come. He is here. And consequently, we must remain vigilant in the waiting. Jesus has put us in charge of his household, of his world. We are to be daily stewarding its well-being. We are to be daily watching out for the environment because this is the planet that he created and he has given us charge to steward it effectively. We are to be looking for opportunities to create truth and beauty because that is the mandate that rests on our shoulders of the creation mandate that we are to go. And in your business, you are to create a world that is more advanced than the world was before. You are to create. It is part of your mandate. There is a redemption mandate that when something is broken, you are to step in as an agent of the kingdom of God and you are to fix what is broken and to usher God's presence into a situation that has been voided of God's presence. You are to be the conduit by which divinity comes and intersects humanity. There is a redemption mandate. There is a creation mandate. There is a worship mandate. There is an environmental mandate. All of these things are given to us by God and we are to be stewarding them while we are on this planet and vigilant and alert and watchful to be doing these things. Daily investing our lives in making this a world that is a reflection of the kingdom of God. Living each moment, nurturing our connection to the Spirit of God so that we can be empowered in order to create a world that is after His heart. And so, Mark says, when the time is long, it's easy to get discouraged. When the time is long, it's easy to lose our attentiveness. So, we begin this season of Advent in the wisdom of those who have gone before us by reminding ourselves. Reminding ourselves with this text from Mark to prepare, to be vigilant, to be alert, to be attentive. So we spend these weeks of Advent looking at preparing our hearts to be people of the kingdom today. On the night of his death, Jesus urged Peter to be vigilant, to be watchful. And he encourages you and I to do the same. Not to be caught off guard when the rooster crows. Not to get lulled into sleep by a sense that the day of reckoning is far off, a long way off. There comes a day when our lives will be judged. 
when our lives will be scrutinized, when we will take the life that we have lived and we will lay it out before our God. And on that day, we will be stripped of denial. On that day, we will be stripped of all, all of our avoidance strategies. On that day, we will be stripped of all our justifications and our rationalizations and our explanations and it will be laid bare before God. And that can be a frightening proposition were it not for the loving, grace-filled, tender-hearted God who provides us today with opportunities by giving us roosters who will crow in our life on a regular basis. The Holy Spirit comes to nudge you at some point of action, similar to what that pastor experienced. And there it is. A rooster is crowing. You'll have a point of conviction during a sermon. And there it is. A rooster is crowing. You'll be reading Scripture and your soul is chastened. You feel a sense of conviction that this is not how I'm to be living. And there it is. The rooster is crowing. You're having a conversation with a spiritual friend. And in the course of that conversation, you sense clearly that you have not been living the way God has called you to live. Then the night hours... Before you fall asleep, some action, some thought, some deed comes back to you. Man, I didn't do that very well. You know, I didn't live very kindly there. didn't live very honestly there. I didn't live very virtuously there. And a rooster crows. A child acts out and you see the link between this child's actions and your own as a parent. And you recognize, I know where that comes from. And there's a point of conviction inside. And there the rooster crows. The responsibility that you feel to those that you love begins to weigh heavily upon you. And the rooster crows. There's a father in our congregation who was talking to me and had been for some time talking about his relationship with his teenage son. And it had been a rough road as teenage sons things typically go. And... Teenage sons say, Dad, you don't know much about life. You need to leave me alone. And father says, Son, you don't know much about life. You need to listen to what I say and do what I tell you to do. And the tension had been going on for months and months and months. And we had prayed together for the son and we would prayed together for the father's heart. And then one day the rooster crowed. One day, I don't know if he'd missed the bus or what had happened, but the father ended up giving the son a ride to school. And as he was doing it, and he was dropping him off, and as he was driving away, the Lord orchestrated his line of sight at just the right moment so that he could look into his rearview mirror, and he could look back, and he could see his son walking into school. And backpacks being what they are these days, if you have kids, you know that they must carry 900 pounds of books in their backpacks. He was carrying this backpack and he was reaching up and he was hunched under this heavy load as he was walking into class. And in that moment, the Lord gave my friend sight. It wasn't just the heavy backpack that he saw. It was the load of difficulties that his teenage son was carrying in a teenage world. His father realized that he was facing a very, very tough time. And he, my friend told me that he was moved in that moment to tears as he was just considering the struggle that his son was facing. And he was moved, my friend told me, to compassion, to be a support to this boy that he loved so much. 
and he was moved with tenderness to a new way of seeing his role in the boy's life. And he sensed a deeper call to back his son, to encourage his son, to champion his cause, to be in his corner, to be his ally. And he prayed, and I prayed. And as I've talked with my friend in the months since then, there is movement. God is capacitating him to make a turn, to make a change, to be a different kind of father. And step by step, it hasn't been an instantaneous, miraculous, wow, it's been step by step. The Lord is processing and changing his capacity to relate with his son, to see the kingdom differently, and to be a kingdom of God kind of father, to act, respond, react differently toward his son. For those of us who are listening, roosters are crowing all the time. And often it's a very uncomfortable process. Often it highlights some point where we've been slumbering, and we don't like that. Often when the rooster crows, it highlights some point where we have a shortcoming. But it's an invitation. These times that are hard to look at. It's an invitation to step away from our denial, to step away from our avoidance, and to let those things hit us squarely so that we can see, yes, I have been living amiss. And if there's anything that you have been hearing from this platform For these years, it has been, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. If there's anything that you've been hearing, it has been, sin isn't that big a deal. Love of God so much trumps the sin of our lives. But the avoidance of sin, not looking within our souls, living the unexamined life, not opening ourselves before the Lord, leaves us stuck where we were. And every time the rooster crows, it is an invitation to turn once again and say, ah, yes, Lord, here it is. I lay it before you. Yes, here is my shortcoming. I have been living out of alignment with you, Lord, and I realign myself with you. I step into this new way of life, Lord. Here it is. Every time it happens, it is an opportunity. You awaken in the morning and there's a spiritual song going over and over in your head. And that is an invitation to live differently. You find yourself not able to give a good reason for your faith to a co-worker or to a friend. And the jarring realization that I can't defend my faith is an invitation to begin to live differently. You find yourself with your body acting up. And the finiteness of your life becomes very clear to you. And you realize I'm not going to live forever. In the first service, we prayed for Art's uh, hip surgery that he's going to have on Tuesday. And he says, you know, I can't even realize it was a year ago that I had this first one. And he said, that year went like that. And the four of us that were sitting around in between the services said, don't you realize how rapidly this life goes? These markers, they come and they're so fast. And it was just yesterday. Stephen just moved away yesterday. And it's been almost a year. We, We find ourselves and these years are just ticking off, ticking off, ticking off. And then we die. And then it's over. And the life that we have lived has been lived. And every time you come to one of those realizations, it's an invitation. The rooster is crowing. Live differently. Live introspectively. Live an examined life. Now, as I said, I'm not going to go up against the culture and try and get us to live contemplatively during the busiest season of life. But there are opportunities during this season that the Holy Spirit may well allow you to hear the crowing of a rooster.
And it's my prayer that in these days you respond. You turn. You lay your life before God. It's my prayer that during this time you allow the Spirit of God to bring a little soul searching, a little soul examination, and that you're prepared. And that should you hear a rooster, your heart would be available to respond. That you would see clearly and turn as historically God's people have done during this first week of Advent. Turn and repent. Let's pray. Lord, may we live as you intended us to live. May we be alert to you. May we be alive to your spirit calling us, nudging us, moving us. Alert to those times when you call us. When the rooster crows and we see that we've been living amiss. May we be called to lives of repentance, lives of turning. Those times when we are called to see, live, and act differently. I pray that it would be so among us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please prepare your tithes and offerings. As we're doing that, let us sing together.